Will you pray with me? Our God of grace, as we look at these words and as we come to them with our hearts and our minds to some degree open this morning, we, we have to admit that we um, often are putting on different kinds of fronts and, and working um, some levels of phoniness and doing impression management because uh, we have messes in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds that we don't want to admit, or maybe we're not even very in touch with ourselves, and we just can't handle the thought of other people knowing how broken we are. We're more of a mess than we care to admit. And every week as we look at, open up the, the Bible, even in some of the most confusing parts, we remember that this story in these pages tells us that even though we're a mess, God, God you chose to turn towards the mess and redeem to love, and out of runaway children, you decided to make princes and princesses in your kingdom that have the rights to all the inheritance that we willfully turned our back on. Somehow you did that, somehow you came, you entered into this world. That's what Christians have been saying from the beginning, that's, that's who Jesus is, that's your presence come to, to suffer as a way to love. And so this morning, may we, may we um, through your help, may we somehow see Jesus better and see you better. And may we know that we are loved, and may that be um, what helps us as individuals and as a church to shine more the way you would have us shine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We did a two-week road trip, um, six national parks, um, as a family, you know, six of us in a car. It was an adventure. And it it was one of my favorite parts was that I had happened to download an audible book um, that was a collection of stories by Roald Dahl, but they were read by him, um, which then I looked around and I couldn't find other ones. It was just this one that had like four or five different stories on it. One of them was called, I'd never heard, seen this book before. Roald Dahl writes children's books, and they're, they're just fantastic. You're probably familiar, at the very least, with the story of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's Roald Dahl. But there's a book called The Magic Finger. I don't know, have anybody heard of The Magic Finger? Yes. Oh, my goodness. And so, as much as I would love to spend a lot of time reading from Roald Dahl books this morning, I'm just going to read you one quote that um, kind of allows us into the topic today from this book. Um, And I'm getting a lot of echoey things from the sound up here. I don't know if you guys can hear me okay, but Davion, we might want to try a little less. I can always shout if need be. Um, So this is this young girl who's writing, you know, first-person narrative, The Magic Finger. She says, now the magic finger is something I have been able to do all my life. I can't tell you just how I do it, but I don't even know, uh, because I don't even know myself. But it always happens when I get cross, I see red, and I get very, very hot all over. Then the tip of the forefinger of my right hand begins to tingle most terribly, and suddenly a sort of flash comes out of me, a quick white flash, like something electric. It jumps out and touches the person who has made me cross. After that, the magic finger is upon him or her. 
and things begin to happen. <laughs> and if you want to know what things, you know, open up that book and read. It's, it's delightful. I love that portrayal of anger. I also love, it must be a raw doll thing, because in another book I was reading to my kids this summer called Danny, the Champion of the World, there's this character called Mr. Victor Hazel, who um, is kind of the guy you're supposed to hate in the story. And at this climactic scene of the story, when they're really getting to this guy, um, this, is what, this is how Roald Dahl writes it, another expression of anger, a great vignette. He says, he left the door of the Rolls Royce open and came at us like a charging bull. My father, Doc Spencer, and I stood close together in a little, little group waiting for him. He started shouting at us the moment he got out of the car, and he went on shouting for a long time after that. I am sure you would like to know what he said, but I cannot possibly repeat it here. The language he used was so foul and filthy it scorched my ear holes. Words came out of his mouth that I had never heard before and hoped never to hear again. Little flecks of white foam began forming around his lips and running down his chin onto the yellow silk scarf. And then as the scene progresses, he says, Mr. Hazel's skin turned now from scarlet to purple. His eyes and his cheeks were bulging so much with rage, it looked as though someone was blowing up his face with a pump. <laughs> oh, I just love, I love, I love just the fun, descriptive language of anger. Anger is the realm we like to think of, the realm of heat, right? It's the emotion that boils. You might see a cartoon and the character has smoke or steam coming out of their ears. Um, and although you might not have at your disposal a magic finger, um, you know that you can, every once in a while at least, explode like a bomb going off that ends up creating some degree of wreckage. You might find that you're more of an anger suppressor. Or you might find that you're a frequent exploder. You know, we have these different ways of dealing with anger. You know, the, the anger suppressor, there might be ways that you say, you know, with your clenched jaw, I'm not angry. You know? um, or like the comment in the worship guide, one of the quotes by, um, by um, what's his name, in King of the Hill, the dad in King of the Hill, he, he says, um, I don't have a problem with anger. I have a problem with idiots. <laughs> you know, you might have these different uh, ways that you kind of suppress and don't, you know, deal with your anger. Or maybe you just let it fly, and that's your way of dealing with it. But you'll find either way that um, an examination of your rage issues, like this passage allows us to do today, is um, is something that that is like taking your spiritual pulse. It's a chance to check, um, because anger, for some reason, I always get a little bit excited, actually, when, when I get to talk or when the Bible passage deals with anger, because I think it just, does some, it just opens us up in a way that other things can't, and it's also something that's just in our almost daily experience. Um, one author even uh, wrote a book about anger, and this is what... Um, his name is Gary, Garrett Kaiser, and he confesses that he wrote his book on anger because he says, my anger has often seemed out of proportion. That is, too great or too little. More often, too great for the occasion that gave rise to it. 
My anger has more often distressed those I love than it has afflicted those at whom I was angry. And my anger has not carried me far enough towards changing what legitimately enrages me. Another author, a Christian author, says this, while admitting that anger can be a natural and healthy God-given emotion, we have to come to grips with the fact that more often than not, our anger burns out of control. And that's what we find with anger is often we realize um, when anger is getting the best of us. We realize, um, and even after it's gotten the best of it, and we look back at things in our lives, and don't you realize once in a while that anger has a lot of potential to create a lot of damage. It's like um, some kind of nuclear rocket that is heading off, but it's got a malfunctioning GPS system. It's like a surgeon with scalpel in hand, ready to do an organ transplant, but the chart of a different patient has been given to the surgeon before the operation. That's us with anger. It's kind of a high-stakes thing. And it can be so kind of uh, problem-causing, this whole thing of anger, that I'm, I must admit that I have some um, similarity. Um, I share this internal conflict with a lot of these. There's early church writers who seem to be in one camp or the other. Some wrote about anger as if, you know, you should, um, you should really just try at all costs to avoid all anger. And others, you know, leaned in more towards, you know, the appropriate use of anger. And I must say, I kind of go back and forth. Sometimes it seems because of how my own white, hot rage seems almost never to be free of the poison of my selfishness, it seems I might as well just avoid the whole thing altogether. And yet there's times I know there's examples. I know it's possible for anger to have a really good place in um, dealing with the wrongs and injustices and evils of the world. When I think of civil rights leaders, for example, Dr. King, and I think of how all the speeches and all the ways that he and others have led um, with anger there constantly, legitimate anger there, as a way of motivating people, in Dr. King's case, towards nonviolent uh, means of righting wrongs and of getting attention on injustices. And so... Both parts are there. You know, do we avoid it completely? Sometimes it feels like it. Other times it feels like, no, righteous anger is needed to deal with the wrongs and evils of this world. In this passage itself, right here on these pages of Ephesians chapter 4, as it transitions into chapter 5, we have that ambivalence. We have those two sides because using the imperative tense of the verb, in verse 26, the writer says, in your anger, do not sin. And so basically it's saying, be angry. It's in the imperative tense. Be angry, but do not sin. So that's there, sort of this like, yeah, anger has a place. And then in the same little stretch of writing, we get to this point where it says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. It's right there. You know, get rid of all of it. There's a, there's a tension here that I think you'll see as we um, move along with this. And of course, this passage, um, while it has that, you know, in your anger do not sin, 
Get rid of all anger, bitterness, rage. It leads us somewhere. It tells us kind of how that, how you're supposed to do that. Because I think most of us feel like you can make some progress in maybe just common sense, maybe just an anger management technique you've heard of, um, or maybe uh, uh, who knows what, you found some way to meditate and deal with anger. But this passage tells us, as oftentimes we'll find in these morality places, these ethical teaching places in the Bible, we'll find the rootedness about as the gospel, what the Bible talks about as the gospel, the central kind of grace-giving action that God has with us and between us, this transformative encounter with God that we learn so much about, so that as we go at this problem of anger, we're not trying to show God that we deserve his love by conquering our anger, but rather the way the gospel works is God shows us how to conquer our anger by how he loves us and how he deals with his own legitimate anger. And so our encounter with the gospel is what drives us. You see, that's where this passage leads, if you notice it carefully, where, where it ended up, is that it brings us to the point where it says, um, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And the same language goes on further. And walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a flagrant offering and fragrant offering and sacrifice. So whether you're trying to eradicate anger or just use it more correctly, this passage drives us to the gospel. This passage drives us to our experience of God's forgiveness and grace. So let's, let's, what's our starting point with that? How do, we get into, how do we get into that? Well, it starts off with what, something you've heard said, you've heard me say a lot, that we're worse off than we want to admit. And you can't really understand God's love. You really can't find the, the key to your own anger if you don't go here. That God is more legitimately angry with our sin, as the Bible would say. He's more legitimately angry at our sin than we like to allow. You know, in our, our culture's answer is, um, I, you know, I can't believe in an angry God. You know, I can be angry, but God can't be angry. And that's sort of a cultural thing that we have. But in order to get into this, in order to really crack the code on your own anger, you've got to realize that God is more legitimately angry at our sin than you want to admit. The damage from our insistence on opposing God's harmonious ways, the damage is way greater, the scope of damage it's way bigger. It's huger. And God, and this is where we get into the gospel. So if you begin to walk down that path of saying, okay, maybe, it's, maybe the mess is bigger than I expect and want to admit. Maybe God sees it. So this is where we go. God, knowing the scale and scope of human evil and destruction, God, with his legitimate, justifiable anger in his demand to kind of balance the scales, nevertheless, God figured out a way, the Bible tells us, how to save us from the explosion of his wrath required by his heart for justice. You know, we see, you know, we see in children, you see anger come up. So you see how innate it is, how ingrained it is. And I think it's because we're made in some way in the image of God. And when a child, uh, another child comes and breaks a child's toy, 
you know, the flare-up happens and the sadness. And that's, in a sense, that's how to, one little small way to think about God, that there is this beautiful, amazing creation. And as the story goes, he gave us a great deal of freedom to kind of, you know, go with the harmony or go away from it. And in our breaking it, it's like there's a natural God. Any, anybody who loves something, once that thing is messed with in wicked, evil ways, it's right in a way to get anger, angry. But as the Bible tells us, so this is the amazing thing. You might not be comfortable with God being anger, angry, but maybe hang in there just enough to see that the way God is described in scriptures blows your, blows your mind. Because it says in Psalm 103 that as far as east is from the west, so far God has removed our transgressions from us. As a way of almost saying, you know, there's a there's an explosion that needs to happen about this, this transgression, this mess, this horribleness here. There's like a, this needs to go away. And you know what? We're going to take that out far away into the desert, and we're going to let that kind of thing, we're going to let that blow up over there so that you over here are safe. You know, um, my brother is a, a sergeant for um, a, a police department in California, and every once in a while he's got a great sense of humor. Every once in a while, you send some kind of little video by Snapchat of things that they were doing. One time I got this video of, of the, you know, the, just the boring thing in police work where they're just waiting around forever as this tiny little mechanical robot in the middle of a field is checking out a bag that's mysterious. And, you know, every, there's this big perimeter, and it's in the middle of the field, and, you know, it's just this kind of boring stuff that maybe in a movie seems really cool. But... Um, you know, I, I get with this issue of God separating our sins as far as east from the west, this picture that a little bit like maybe a bomb squad somewhere or maybe it's just movies where they take it far away from civilians and from anybody and they know this is going to probably blow up and they take it over here and they handle it where the fewest and they detonate where the fewest casualties can possibly happen. When I was young, I was watching you know, movies and the action movies I would watch. Inevitably, there would be different kinds of weapons and so forth. And one of the things that there would be, maybe an explosion was going to go off. But the people who um, were setting off this explosion had this long string thing. You know, it was like a fuse. And at the, at the end of it, you know, they lit it and the little sparks were going and going and going. And there's this idea that like, if we get far enough and we have a long enough set of wires, you know, we'll be safe when the thing explodes. And God's in the business, according to the Bible, if you kind of follow God in the story of anger, his legitimate anger at a broken creation and the way we've messed it up, if you follow that, you see God's in the business, finish my sentence, of fuse lengthening and safe detonation. When, on our road trip that I referred to earlier, one of the first stops we went to was um, a, a really deep and um, a different kind of experience than almost all the rest of the things that we did. We got to go to the Manzanar Japanese internment camp historic site. And so it's just on the other side of the Sierra Nevada mountains. It's a tremendous, rich experience. Um, disheartening, you know, troubling experience to, to walk through. It's an amazing visitor center, amazing museum, a great, like, video and great rangers there to, um, to help, you know, teach kids and everything about what happened in World War II when all these Japanese Americans were, out of fear, put into camps, 10,000 people at this particular camp. Amidst that, I heard this story, amidst somewhere in that, uh, when we were visiting there, I heard the story of one of the, um, one of the uh, 
prisoners, we'll call them, of the camp, because really that's what it felt like. You're kind of put here and you have no choice to leave, and there's guards with guns. Uh, so one of the prisoners volunteered to join um, you know, the US Army in World War II, volunteered to fight, and there was a Japanese-American unit. And as the story goes, this particular um, uh, man who basically was, was, this whole war, this whole thing was affecting him and all of his people and his family so negatively. He wasn't, you know, during the war he was treated uh, unjustly. After the war, if he would have come back alive, he would have been treated horribly and unjustly either way. And this soldier, at some point, falls and jumps onto a grenade that comes in, you know, amidst his troop and, and saves everybody else by giving his own life. I was struck by that, and I just thought, you know, sometimes that's a, maybe also a scene in, the, in an action or a war movie or something, but the particular contours of the injustice that, is that sat with that man already before he jumped in and, and saved others by doing that really just stuck with me. And I, I, I was thinking as I thought about how does God deal with his anger, and especially as Jesus, the Son of God, comes um, to bring grace, to bring forgiveness. As the um, passage we read earlier says, he came not to condemn the world, but to save it. I think that God is like that soldier in a way, except there's some key differences. It's, he's like that soldier jumping on the explosion to save everyone else. That's sort of like what Jesus is, except one of the differences, it, it, it's, it's, in a sense, it's God's grenade. that he, It's his own grenade he's jumping on. And the people he's saving are the ones that are fighting against him, the ones that are trying to kill him. That's a, another way to think about what Jesus is doing on the cross, what God is allowing his son to go through. On the cross, and so the Christian takes all of that and absorbs all of that. And if you, um, if God's Spirit begins to help that to come alive for you, and not just be a concept, you know, a sense that you do sense how gentle God has approached you compared to what you deserve. If that's become a little bit real for you, then the idea of this passage is that you'll have sort of like a new way in. To dealing with anger. You'll have a new way in to transforming anger into compassion. Because you've been transformed by how God turned anger into the compassion. You'll find new ways to you know, lengthen your fuse and give yourself sacrificially in some ways to take a hit in, a, in an injustice that you don't deserve to take. Because you're about something bigger. You're about something that's going to be healing and put things together. One uh, ancient church father named Evagrius, I never heard about this, this, uh, this writer until this week. At first I thought, is that made up? Is that name made up? But no, this is, I looked him up. This is a real church father, if I can find the quote. This is just very simply what he says about anger. He says, therefore make use of every means to avoid an outburst of anger. Um, as I was thinking about this, a story came to mind, one that I, I think I have brought up before. And it's of uh, Dr. King in 1962 when he was giving a speech and addressing a convention. Um, and I'm just going to read here this summary. A 200-pound white man, the 24-year-old American Nazi Party member Roy James, 
jumped onto the stage and struck the clergyman in the face. King responded with a level of courage that made a lifelong impression on many of those in the audience. One of them, storied educator and activist Septina Clark, described how King dropped his hands like a newborn baby and spoke calmly to his attacker. King made no effort to protect himself, even as he was knocked backwards by further blows. Later, after his aides had pulled the assailant away, he talked to the young man behind stage and insisted that he would not press charges. Another account says that he could be heard saying out while he was getting beat up, um, you know, leave him alone. We need to pray for him. And that after the, after the um, encounter, they did go backstage and, and he prayed for him. How do you, that's the question that we leave with today. How do you confront, legitimately confront an offense boldly while unmistakably being for the offender? How do you do that? And maybe today as we look at this passage, maybe God, um, we ask ourselves, has God in Christ won you over as the non-exploding God of compassion? Is that how you know God? That might just be the starting point today. Or maybe uh, just the idea of, are you in touch with the spiritual nature of your anger? A question for us as a church, quite frankly, would be, do we know each other well enough to get mad? There might be a side of this that's particular to city life, as being a church where we've been very okay. It's very safe to kind of take your time, be in process, be at a distance. Is it time to enter into community more for you so that you actually might know people here well enough to have to deal with anger at others? Because that's a normal thing you will deal with if you're in good solid Christian community together. Let's pray that that would happen. Our God of grace, thank you for these words. Not a fun walk in the park today as we consider um, deep things about ourselves, but as it's also filled with hope and joy as we think about um, the astonishing way that you've dealt with us. I pray that um, you would move these words into our hearts in deeper ways, peeling away the layers of, of our spiritual onion and getting to the heart of the matter where we're just, just hungry and thirsty, where we're maybe resentful, scared and sad. And would you pour your compassion? Would you wrap your parental loves around us, your children? We pray in Jesus' name. Our worship continues with an offering time. While the musical offering is being played, we use this time of worship to give back to God and his work from what he has entrusted to us. If you are visiting, a special reminder that this is not a moment of pressure to give. But we do love getting the contact cards and finding ways to answer questions or follow up with your needs. Mm -hmm. Let's frame this moment by joining together with the offering prayer. Lord God, 
We bless you for all our many gifts to us. We return these gifts as a token of our gratitude, longing for the conviction and strength to offer our whole lives to your service. Grant us the wisdom and discernment to be good stewards of these gifts, and that our ministry may bear rich fruits in your kingdom. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.